Joan Carey. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to carry our burdens to you, recognizing that you are a God of love. And if there's one here who came into this room bearing those burdens on his own, her own, that they would cast them at the feet of Christ and find a loving Savior whose burden is light and whose yoke is easy. May you give us grace as we look into your word, as we pray in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're in first and third grade, you can slip out this time. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church for uh, those who are in first through third grade. You can pick them up right in the lobby, right after the service. And so uh, hear that, we're up in the fellowship hall. And so very thankful for, um, for those who invest in our kids in that way every single week. John chapter 6, as we turn there, we need to recognize that John 6 is a very, very well-known passage of Scripture. In fact, it's probably the most famous miracle of all of the miracles that Christ has done. As we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that each one of those books is written... From an eyewitness perspective, Mark through the eyes of Peter, but from an eyewitness perspective of the life of Christ. And when we look at the book of John, John is written, and there's a lot of information in John that's not found in the other Gospels because of John's purpose. But there is one miracle that all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include, and John includes. In fact, there are only two miracles that are found in all four Gospels. One, of course, is the resurrection. And the other is in front of us this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. As we look at the entirety of John chapter 6, if I've counted correctly, I believe it's the longest chapter in the book of John, we have what is commonly referred to as the bread of life discourse, the bread of life discourse, the entirety of John chapter 6. In fact, if you were to go to Bible college, and you were, they were to have you memorize what we would call chapter content, that is, what is in, in the different chapters in the New Testament, the title of John 6 would be the Bread of Life Discourse, because it's the teaching regarding this idea of Jesus being the Bread of Life. And I want you to see that it follows the same pattern as chapter 5, in that we have a miracle that is performed, we have teaching that is explaining that miracle, and then we have the response of those who are there. And so when we look at John chapter 6, we see the miracle of the feeding of the thousands that are there. We see the teaching. We also see the miracle of him walking on the water. But in the Bread of Life discourse, we see the, the, the miracle of the multiplying the loaves and the fishes. We see the teaching beginning in verse 22 on Jesus being the Bread of Life. And then we see the response beginning in verse 60 with this um, phrase, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. And then we have the response in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so really what we have in John chapter 6 is a divisive moment in the ministry of Jesus. We have this moment where thousands are following 
Jesus performs a miracle to attest to his identity. He teaches them what that miracle means. And then we have the response from the crowd that says, well, if that is who Jesus is, then I don't want any part of it. And tens of thousands of people leave Christ at that point. And so when we look at John chapter 6, we need to understand the flow of the chapter because we're going to take several weeks to walk through this chapter. But let's not leave, let's not forget the broader context and the flow of the book as John is building his case that Jesus is the Son of God and that those who believe on him will find life in his name. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. We read them for our scripture reading. We'll read them again just to keep them in the forefront of our minds and to remind us that the primary portion of the sermon is simply the reading of the scripture and the giving the sense of it and explaining how it applies to our life. So let's read verses 1 through 15 just from John's perspective as I read earlier the perspective of all four gospels. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover and the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd that was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do, and Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, son of Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Lord, would you open our eyes to your word that we may see you and thus worship you as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. As we walk through this narrative, I'm going to continue the pattern that we've uh, stuck to the last several weeks, and that is understand the setting, understand the issue that's being addressed, and then recognize what Jesus is saying about what's happening here. So let's look at the setting first. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He is taking some time away with his disciples. Perhaps you have always viewed Jesus' ministry as constantly surrounded by groups of people, and that is in fact the case for the majority of his ministry, but often we see Jesus stepping back, as it were, and focusing either on just his 12 disciples, maybe just Peter, James, and John, just the three closest, or even by himself as he steps away and takes time. He took this time away because primarily, as we look at the Gospels, Jesus' ministry 
is to the 12 disciples. Even the miracle that we have here is not primarily for the people who are receiving the miracle. The miracle is for the faith of the disciples. And so as Jesus is performing this miracle, his ministry is geared towards these 12 who will, in the book of Acts, step out and be the leaders of the church to take the gospel to the known world as the church is birthed and begins to flourish. And so Jesus steps away from the crowds and focuses on the ministry of his disciples. And he sets a good example for us. Friends, there will always be more ministry or more work to accomplish. And every once in a while, we need to set apart time to step back and step away to remind us that it is the work of God through us that makes our work flourish. Those of you who have a job with a checklist, it's very easy possibly at the end of the day, the end of the day, to look at your checklist and to say, here's what I got accomplished. But for those of us who are more in people type ministry, you get to the end of the day and you say, I have been incredibly busy today, but I'm not quite sure what all I got done. I'm not quite sure what I did, but I know I was busy. And it's important for us to recognize that the work that we are setting ourselves up to accomplish specifically in regards to the ministry of the gospel, it will never be done. There will always be more to do. And Jesus sets the pattern here of saying, we should have times in our life in which we step back. And, and even in my, in my Bible reading, recognizing through the book of Exodus that Jesus gives us a Sabbath to remind us that we need to rest and be refreshed in our work. He's using this time to prepare for the Passover celebration we see here in verse 4. And we also see that there are crowds that are constantly following him and chasing him. We could call them, if we want to be really 21st century, you know, lingo, we could say Jesus has a crowd of groupies following him, okay? These aren't true followers. These are people who see Jesus, they're fascinated by Jesus, and they're following him around, excuse me, following him around everywhere that he goes. And verse 2 is clear why they are following him. Look down at verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the set. Here's what it looks like. Jesus performs a miracle, he pulls away, and the crowds disperse to try to figure out where he went. The word starts to pass. Well, he went over to the mountainous area of the country, and the crowds are following him. Like second graders on a soccer field around the soccer ball. You know, there are no positions in elementary soccer. It's no holds barred. Go get it as quickly as you can and kick it as hard as you can, and let's hope it goes in the right direction. It's, it's a crowd following Jesus. Why are they following him? Because... They wanted something from him. They were not following him to serve him. They were following him to get something from him. And that's not all bad, but what do they want to get from him? Look at verse 2. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Can I ask you a question this morning? What do you want from Jesus? Why are you here at church? Are you here because the fellowship at work is really degrading or perhaps it leaves you in want of Christian fellowship? So you come to a gathering like this just to 
see your Christian friends and to connect and to be uplifted and take a little bit of spiritual Tylenol, per se, so that you can make it through the week? Are you here because your bank account is running low and you just hope that if you pray enough or perhaps sing loud enough, that God will replenish your bank account? Or maybe you haven't been to church in a long time and you've shown up because all of a sudden you have needs in your life and you just want Jesus to fix your problems. Why are you here? What is it that has drawn you to Christ this morning? What drew the crowds to Jesus was something other than saving faith. They wanted Jesus for what he could do for them rather than what they could do for him and serving him. Let's look at the problem. We've seen the setting and the problem that arises is that all of these groupies have come, these fans of Christ that are truly followers, as we'll see later, because they turn and they walk away. They had a problem, a legitimate problem. Look down at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? <clears throat> There's a problem. You have a lot of people here. This is a sustenance society, meaning that they everything that they lived on was what they gathered, they hunted, or they grew. They, a lot of times, didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And so there was a responsibility to show hospitality in the Middle Eastern culture to provide food and to provide a meal. And Jesus sees himself as caring for these people. And so he says, listen, we need to feed these thousands of people. Where can we go so that we can buy bread so that they can eat? And we see in the other Gospels that actually the disciples were encouraging him to do the opposite. Why don't you send them away to go buy bread so they can get it on their own? And Jesus says, no, let's provide something for them. The motivation for Jesus to solve this problem is given to us by Matthew and Mark. As those two Gospel writers record that Jesus looked on with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering without a leader. He saw the crowd and he had compassion because they were lost souls in need of spiritual rescue. Even though they were coming for the wrong reason, even though they were fans and not followers, they were groupies and not true believers, even though they surrounded Christ for the wrong reason, he still looked on with compassion. And it drove him to meet their need. What is compassion? What is compassion? I believe that compassion is loving someone enough to make what is important to them important to you. You know, there are a lot of things that are important to you that are really important to me. Some of you love things and care about things that I could care less about. And I'm very passionate about some things that you guys could really care less about, right? And compassion is looking on someone's life and loving them enough to say, you know, that's important to you. And because it's important to you, I'm going to make it important to me. It's it's. It's filling the void of meeting a need because you love someone so much. 
And so Jesus looks on this crowd, and because he's filled with compassion for these people who would soon turn away and reject him, yet he meets their need. How big was this crowd? If you have a Bible like mine, you'll see it has a heading at the top of chapter 6 that says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, Matthew, who's the numbers guy because he's a tax collector, tells us, as John does, that there are 5,000 men, and Matthew adds, plus women and children. Where you find men, you will normally find women, and when you find men and women together, you will normally find children. And so here, we can safely assume that there are at least 15,000 people here. Some people say, some theologians, historians would say as many as 25,000 people here. So we'll just kind of land somewhere in the middle and say 20,000 people. That's a lot of people following Christ, sitting on the sides of these mountains, just hoping that Jesus will heal them, hoping that he'll give them something. They're there because they want something from him. Jesus, looking on with compassion, sees the crowd is gathered. The other gospel writers tell us that it was beginning to be late in the day, and they were beginning to get hungry. So this is what happens in a church service about 12.01, right? As the clock continues to move, and you realize it's lunchtime. But most of these people would only eat one meal a day, and Jesus recognizes that if that meal isn't provided for them here, they will probably go without that day. And so full of compassion, he's going to meet their greatest physical need, to show them that he has come to meet their greatest spiritual need. Every meal was hard in those days. There were no fast food restaurants. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and says he wants to do the impossible. Philip, I want to feed all these people. Where can we go to buy food for all of these people? And we see the phrase in verse 6. Look at verse 6. A very important phrase. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And there we find the purpose of the miracle. The focus of the miracle was not on the food that was provided, as if the barley loaves and the fish meant something specific, or we should read into them as allegorically standing for something else. The purpose of the miracle was not this nameless child who happened to have a little bit of food on him. The purpose of this miracle is found in verse 6. It is the testing of the disciples. That's why Jesus is doing this. And so... We see with this problem man's hopeless answer. Hopeless answer. Two answers are given. Verse 7. $40,000, $45,000 worth of food, Philip says, would only be enough to buy enough food so everyone could just have one bite. That's what he's saying. Jesus, it'd be great if we could find somewhere to buy food for them, but... If we had $45,000, you know, all of these denarii, 200 days wages, we could go out and we could buy all the food in the surrounding towns and it still would only be enough to feed every one of them just a bite. And so we see 
that the first answer is that what Jesus is asking of them is fiscally or financially impossible. There's no way this can happen. The numbers don't add up. Jesus, what you're asking me to do is fiscally impossible. No, we can't feed them. What are you thinking? Secondly, the answer comes from Andrew that not only is it financially impossible, fiscally impossible, it is also practically impossible. Let's go around and see if this could be some sort of ministry of sharing. Let's see who brought food to see if we could divide it up. And they say, hey, there's not enough food even to share because there are only five little barley biscuits. These aren't loaves of bread like you would buy a loaf of bread. These are little biscuits, almost like wafer crackers, enough for a child to eat for lunch, two little either smoked or pickled fish, and five little barley crackers. There's nothing to share. And so you're asking us, can we do this? And we're telling you no. We can't. Because it's financially impossible. And it's practically impossible. There's not enough to go around. Look at the end of Andrew's statement. I think it sums it up well. The end of verse 9. What are they for so many? I've got 20 bucks in my wallet. i got five loaves and two little fish. But what are they for so many, Jesus? It's impossible. How do you respond when the commands to follow Christ seem impossible? God, what you're asking me to do is not possible. Perhaps you would be like Moses. Lord, you're asking me to speak and I stutter. I'm not a good speaker. And it's almost like God looks down to Moses and said, did you forget that I created your lips? <laughs> that I created your voice box? Did you forget that I created you? How do you respond when God calls you to do something impossible? Let's say it another way. What command is God pressing into your heart through his word that you are struggling with right now that seems financially or practically impossible? What is it? Have you stopped giving to gospel endeavors? Have you stopped giving to the church because you're more financially stressed now than you've ever been. And the first thing to go is giving back to God and, and, and your heart has been pressed that you need to show your love by giving to the work of the gospel as God has commanded with a cheerful heart. But you say, God, that's impossible because there's more month than there is money. Are you scared to take God and his word, to just believe the Bible and be obedient because you're afraid of the consequences? God, if I step out and obey you in this way, this is what I see is going to happen, what I think is going to happen, and that scares me. It's impossible for me to act in this way because do you know what that means for my family? Do you know what that means for me? Do you know what that means for my wife? Do you know what that means for my children, my grandchildren? Have you been so wrapped up in what you can see 
that you forget that we are called to a city whose builder and maker is God. Having seen these promises by faith and greeted them from afar, Hebrews chapter 11. Have you forgotten that we are strangers and exiles on the earth? Have you forgotten that we've been called to desire a better country, a heavenly one? That we are called to walk by faith and not by sight? My wife and I have a phrase that we've developed over the years, and it's, I'm more concerned about the consequences of not obeying God than I am about obeying God. That I look and I say, well, if I don't obey God, if I don't do what's right, these consequences seem a whole lot easier to bear than if I take the step of obedience and I see these consequences over here that seem so much worse. And in those moments we recite to ourselves, I'm more concerned about the consequences of not obeying than obeying whatever they may be. And friends, it's hard to live by sometimes. I should say it's hard to live by all the time. And, and Jesus poses this question, how can we feed them? He's doing it to test them. And of course, what, what the desired answer would be, Jesus, we can't, but you can. Can you help us? We trust you. We believe you. But instead he gets, well, we don't have enough money, and there's no way we can do it with what we have. Fiscally, practically impossible. And so Jesus calls them to live by faith. And we need to recognize that this is not a call to foolish living. It's a call to radical discipleship. Radical discipleship. It's a call to leave and to cleave to your wife or your husband when it seems so difficult. It's a call to open your mouth to say the truth when you can't imagine saying it in that context. It's risking that friendship with the unbeliever that you've been developing over these years in order to put a name to the faith that's a part of your life. It's taking the step of obedience and gathering when you just can't imagine getting out of bed. It's to recognize that Jesus is calling to believe what you cannot see. He's calling you to trust and obey even when you can see the consequences of what will happen. And so what we see in this passage is that when the numbers don't add up, and practically it just doesn't make sense, we are exactly where God wants us to be. Look down at verse 10. I, I try not to read through the in between the lines of Scripture. Sometimes it's hard not to be, but putting myself in that scenario, Jesus asks the question, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip says, we can't pay for it. And Andrew says, it's impossible. And Jesus says, why don't you just have them sit down? What? Why don't you just have them seated in these grassy areas? He performs a miracle to prove his identity. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, these biscuits, these crackers, and these fish, and he looks up to heaven and he give, gives thanks. He doesn't necessarily bless the food as some have 
thought that he turns and, and with his words pronounces some sort of blessing over the food that begins the miracle. He gives thanks to the Father through whom he is doing this miracle. And then he distributed them, the loaves and the fish, the five loaves and the two fish, to those who were seated. It's the most non-dramatic statement ever. 20,000 people are sitting there. He has five crackers and two little fish, and he gives thanks to the Father, and then he just feeds 20,000 people with five crackers and two fish. He creates fish. He creates bread from the pieces of the small meal that's given to him. Now, we don't know exactly how this has happened, or how this happened. Some people have thought that Jesus walks among the crowd and passes it out, and if that were the case, it would take days for Jesus to feed 20,000 people that way. Others have thought even that he would give it to the disciples, and the disciples walked, and the disciples passed out and, and the bread and the fish, and have used that as, you know, as some sort of picture as you know, the pastor and the deacons passing out communion, and all of that's allegorization. We want to stay away from that because it's not the reason for the parable. More than likely, what happened is Jesus begins to pass it out to people. It would have taken six plus hours for 12 disciples to pass out the fish and the crackers to 20 plus thousand people. And so Jesus passes it out to the first row and they pass it out behind them. And in their hands, fish and loaves are being created. What does that look like? I have no idea. But you can almost hear the cries of joy and the gasps of the crowd as, you know, five people turn into to 10, which turn into 25, which turn into 50. And exponentially, the, the bread and the fish are passed all through this crowd of 20 plus thousand people as in their hands, bread is multiplying and duplicating. And in their hands, fish are materializing. And the very power of God is demonstrated right in front of them. It's an incredible, incredible scene. There are some liberals, liberal theologians, I know we're in the middle of an election season, so we always have to clarify that. A liberal theologian is someone who would approach scripture and not see it as the word of God. In fact, I talked to a brother in Christ who, who was in our membership this morning who said that he actually uh, visited a church to where the pastor got up and said, this really isn't about a miracle. This is to teach us about the ministry of sharing. Like, okay. He's like, we didn't go back. Well, that's good. I'm glad you didn't go back to the church. Okay, Because that, that is what we would call a liberal theologian. Someone who would take liberties with the text that, that the Bible does not say we should take, who looks at this and says, this is an inspired scripture. It's not really about a miracle. This is just about how, no matter what you have, you should share with others. And, and that perhaps is a good statement, but that's not what this is about, okay? In sharing, we have a, a beautiful example of sharing every year as uh, Greg and Paula Elliott put on a, a, a picnic for the 4th of July on their beautiful property and they invite the whole church and many of us come out with our dishes and we lay it out on this incredible table and then we have what's called a ministry of sharing, right? Where we share and we go around and at the end there's less than there was to begin with, right? And some of the dishes disappear more quickly than others. 
And at the end, you'll go through and you'll see where there's a little bit of this casserole left and there's a little bit of this pie left and there are none of those cookies and all of the hot dogs are gone or whatever. Because at the end of a ministry of sharing, there is less than at the beginning. But here what we have, and I'm kind of giving away the punchline, but there's more at the end than at the beginning. Because this is not a ministry of sharing. This is a miracle of Jesus Christ to prove that he as God can do the impossible. That when man falls short and all of man's explanations are no good, that's when Jesus steps in and he meets the need to prove that he is God. That's what we have. And this, these crackers and this fish, these, these little biscuits and fish, is just multiplying all over so much so that the disciples go around and collect the leftovers and there are 12 baskets to prove that God has provided for them above and beyond. In fact, if you, if you look at the way this is, this is phrased, it's actually kind of comical. Uh, at the end, look at the end of verse 11. It says, so also the fish, as much as they wanted, which is really rare in a society where all of your food comes from what you gather. And then in verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, that's an interesting phrase there that's used of, um, and I don't want to be gross, but like uh, if you've ever been to a pig farm and they take a giant uh, bucket of old food and they just throw it in a trough and the animals come like, you know, and they just eat up and they eat up everything. That, that's, what, that's what this is referring to. It's, it's like Jesus lays out these divine, this divine food, this manna in the wilderness, per se, and everyone is eating up all that they can, so much so that even in this society, where they're used to just having one small meal a day, they eat as much as they want, and they eat at the trough of the food that Christ has provided like, they are so full that they sit back and it's like Thanksgiving afternoon where we go all take a nap, right? Wow! I've never e eaten like this before. This must be how kings eat. All that I want, eaten my fill. Gathering up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. This was beyond anything that any one of them had ever seen. Because Jesus works in ways that are beyond our comprehension and even beyond our wildest imaginations. That when we come to a place in our life where all of our explanations of how this will work fall short and God steps in, it's beyond what you could have ever imagined. That Jesus meets the need of his people. And he even offers this to the world. Friend, you have a problem in your life that only Jesus can fix. As we see later on in this passage, Jesus will make the statement in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Here is what the feeding of the 5,000 men is all about. Jesus has provided for your greatest spiritual need in every way that 
you try to provide forgiveness for your own sins will fall short. You can give every penny that you own to the Lord and it will not earn you one ounce of favor with God because God doesn't need your money. We have the blessing of giving with a joyful heart. And it provides for the needs of the gospel. But friend, if you don't give, God's going to provide some other way. The whole point of giving is that God gets to use you. God gets to use your finances. God gets to use your time. God gets to use your skills to accomplish his work. And when we can step in and provide that way, we can see the blessing as God's power flows through us. You can try everything in your life to try to get rid of your own sin. You can try every act of penance. You can pray a hundred Hail Marys. You can do whatever you want to try to earn God's favor and to earn forgiveness from your sin. And it will always fall short. Because the only solution to your greatest need is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the salvation that is offered to the world. And by meeting this need in their life, he's communicating to his disciples that he is the answer. He's the answer. I am the bread of life. John 6.35. What is the crowd's response? What's the crowd's response? Sit down at verse 14. John chapter 6 and verse 14 tells us what their response is to this miracle. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. No doubt these Jews were starting to put two and two together in their knowledge of the Old Testament. Isaiah 119, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55, verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Psalm 22 and verse 26, the Messianic Psalm. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And here in their knowledge of the Old Testament, they start to put all of these prophecies together and they realize he's the one. He's the prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 that shall arise like Moses. He's the one would come. Verse 14 reminds us, though, that all those who claim to believe in God or quote scripture references or say that they are a Christian or write Bible verses on their shoes or whatever it would be, does not mean they are genuine followers of Christ. For verse 14 is not a saving response. 
a statement of truth, Jesus is God, does not make someone saved. A statement of truth, God is good, I believe in God, I like the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, a touchdown with a point towards heaven, whatever it would be, a statement towards a voting block of evangelical voters that I believe in God, attendance towards you know, towards church to gain favor, all of those things do not guarantee saving faith. Because verse 14 is not a statement of faith because these same people who say, that's the prophet from Moses, at the end of chapter 6 say, I'm done. Because you require too much. So what is it? I've been helped greatly in this passage by the sermons of James Montgomery Boyce through the Gospel of John. Boyce organizes the reaction of the crowd under two headings that I'd like to use. But I think these are helpful in understanding the responses to Jesus. So I'm going to kind of pull over his headings and I'll explain them to you a little bit. This is not a saving response because verse 15 shows us that they loved Jesus because he gave them what they wanted. They loved him because he gave them what they wanted. They were hungry and he provided food. Who wouldn't follow a person who gives them what they want? I mean, you mean that I don't have to plant a garden, I don't have to fish, I don't have to hunt, I don't have to gather, I don't have to scrounge for food anymore? Sure, I'll leave anything to say, I'm in. <laughs> Just give me food all the time. Keep providing this. Give me a meal. You mean Jesus makes my life better? Great, I'm in. Jesus is going to fill my bank account? Great, I'm in. I give a dollar, he gives me back ten. I give ten, he gives me back a hundred. I give a, a hundred, he gives me back a thousand. And if you give ten thousand, I'll send you a nightlight. You can pray to and I'll answer your prayers even more. Jesus will do that for me. I'm all in. Huge crowds follow. Does this sound familiar? They wanted a Jesus who would give them what they wanted. Is that why you're here? Is that why you follow Christ? Someone told you that if you become a Christian, your life gets better? Maybe you forgot to tell that to Paul, Stephen, all the apostles, all the prophets. They followed him because he made their life easier. But what happens when Jesus doesn't? What happens when Jesus turns out to be different than you think he is? What happens when the Jesus that you accepted because he would make your life easier, that same faith makes your life more difficult? What happens then? You turn away. Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the soils. <clears throat> they loved him because he gave them what they wanted. Number two, they loved Jesus because they could use him for their own personal gain. They wanted to overthrow Rome. He's the guy. I found my guy. We've been looking for someone who could overthrow the Romans. It's right there in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were able, about to come, to take him by force to make him king. This is the leader we've been looking for. 
give us everything we want, and he's going to do what we tell him to do. We're going to make him the king. He's going to be our king. I can manipulate and coerce Jesus into being who I want him to be. You know what that looks like today? It looks like I'm going to take scripture, and I'm going to twist a passage of scripture to make it mean what I want it to mean, so that then I can have a Jesus that's not offensive. I'm going to take what God has said and I'm going to change it so that you don't have to change to come to God. He'll change to come to you. And then maybe nobody will be upset and nobody will be, will be angry and nobody will have any questions and there'll be no mystery to my faith. I find it fascinating that Paul, in, the, in his letter to the Romans, which is this doctrinal treatise on the character of God. He is constantly saying, if you, if you read, he'll give you a doctrinal statement. Go read the book of Romans like this, and it'll make a whole lot more sense. He gives a doctrinal statement, and then he says, now I know this is hard to hear, and I know it's going to make you angry, and I know you don't understand it, but it's true. And we've done the opposite with God. We've said, well, let's just ignore some passages of Scripture. Let's pretend like certain things aren't true so that people won't get upset and so Jesus can be more palatable and we'll just talk about His love and we'll talk about His grace, which is true. God is a God of love and He's a God of grace and he's a, but He's a God also of mercy from His wrath. And the fact that we are all sinners and the Gospel is a message of forgiveness from sin. And friends, Jesus will not be manipulated or used by any person. Do not knowingly, friend, use the message of Scripture to manipulate for your own ends. And be very careful that we don't do that even unintentionally. Because he would not be manipulated... He withdrew from them. There's, there's some uh, teachers out there who would say that Jesus was a religious zealot and a troublemaker who stirred up people to his own ends. And if that were true, verse 15 would be the opposite. It would say, finally, they're stirred up enough into a frenzy to make me king so I can take over. When Jesus withdraws, for he says, this is not my time. My kingdom is in the future. I'm here to build a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of those who would embrace me by faith. As we'll see later in the chapters I've mentioned several times, when people recognize what saving faith in Jesus actually is and what saving faith requires, most will walk away. Scripture says it this way, the, the way is narrow that leads to righteousness and leads to Christ, but the way is broad that leads to destruction. And so, when the person understands what saving faith involves in bowing to God as your king, and embracing Jesus for who he is, and recognizing this is God's world that we have the opportunity to live in, and placing our faith and trust in Christ alone Realizing that the only thing that I bring to the table in my salvation is my sin. Because salvation is all of God. When you present that gospel, most walk away, as we find at the end of the chapter. So as we look at this text, I've 
preach this message inductively, meaning I haven't really told you the thesis yet. Normally I start out with that and build my case, placing this at the end in an inductive way. What is the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000 men? Here's what you should walk away with. When we look at life around us, and the, when we look at life around us and God's will seems impossible, we must remember to walk by faith and to trust Jesus to do what only God can do. When you look at life around you and following Christ seems impossible, we need to walk by faith and realize that Jesus does what only God can do. That's the application for the Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what is this passage all about? When you look at your eternal state and you realize that you stand condemned before God because of your sin, the only biblical response is to realize that Jesus can do what you cannot. He can do the impossible. Through faith in Him, your life can be reconciled to God. And thus your greatest need, your spiritual need of reconciliation is provided through Christ. Because Jesus is the God of the impossible. Through his power, he does what only God can do. In providing salvation for the lost. And providing grace and strength to live a life in accordance with the will of God. And may God give us the grace to believe that and trust that Jesus.